You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. All right, we are here with uh, Peter Moskos, who's of the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, City University of New York, professor of criminology, author of many books and articles on policing and uh, crime and punishment. Uh, Cop in the Hood, uh, was that your first book, Peter? That was my first book. That was based on my uh, PhD research when I was a grad student in sociology at Harvard. I became a cop for um, under two years and uh, in Baltimore City and then uh, took another seven years to write the book. But still, uh, that's all good, man. You got your PhD at Harvard. You ended up with uh, a professorship at John Jay. And uh, you also author of In Defense of Flogging, as I recall. Which is a kind of tongue-in-cheek, but not entirely whimsical uh, reflection on punishment as a theoretical sociological problem. Yeah, I am. I, I it's kind of a prison abolition book, actually. Yeah. Um, but I, the basic gambit is um, we don't flog people anymore. We don't whip people as punishment because we know what's cruel and inhumane and barbaric and and in America racist. Um, yeah. Yeah. If you were given the choice, if you were found guilty of a crime and were given the choice between two years in prison and four lashes, which would you take? It's not a hard call, man, even though those lashes are going to hurt like hell. They're going to hurt not like a hard hell. Call. Um, <laughs> and so we don't use corporal punishment, and instead we do something that is worse, and we think that's normal. I get it. Let me tell people this is the Glenn Show, bloggingheads.tv. Uh, and my guest is Peter Moskos, as you know, as you can see here, criminologist extraordinaire, and I am Glenn Lowry, and I'm at Brown University and the Watson Institute on International and Public Affairs at Brown Sponsors the Glenn Show. Okay, so Peter, and also wrote Greek Americans, Glenn. No one talks about that. I want your Greek American viewers to go buy that book. Damn it! Okay, so there's a Greek American book as well. Everybody out there, Moscos. Did you get that M O S K O S? So we we understand that. <laughs> uh, but Peter, man, policing in America, defund the police. This is your beat, uh, and you've. Uh, appeared on the Glenn Show in the past, and we've talked about some of these issues, uh, George Floyd and all of that. Uh, what's going on? Uh, the autonomous zones and uh, big cities, uh, the war on cops, come on, Heather McDonald actually has a point, doesn't she? Uh, the rise in <laughs> homicide in some of these places, the notorious, I mean, the shootings, they're going ballistic. I can't even keep track of them. Uh, Roland Fryer and the research on, uh, you know, uh, uh, federal scrutiny of local police departments and cops withdrawing and higher uh, rates of violent crime in consequence of that. I'm just wondering how you're reading the current moment uh, uh, from the point of view of uh, legitimacy of policing, public safety, uh, the kind of politics of this. Uh, cops are retiring left and right. I mean, this is something that you must have some insight into. Uh, and, uh, I really, I mean, you can start anywhere in that long uh, train of stuff, but what are you thinking about this moment in terms of policing? Well, I'm afraid it's uh, going to be counterproductive and more people are going to die. Um, I, it's, I mean, it's, I find it depressing if you do this professionally for a living and been doing it for however long I've been doing it, 15, 20 years. Um, and suddenly it's amateur hour in the, in the police reform movement. Everyone's got an opinion. It's usually rooted in skewed facts and perspective and people like myself, but really more others who are more even active in, in, in this, um, you know, we've been working to improve policing and succeeding. That's the thing. It's been getting better slowly and incrementally. That's not a very popular approach right now, but um, it's been getting better and suddenly it's all thrown out. I mean, in New York city, we seem to be dismantling the NYPD 
And very recently, um, man, oh man, shootings have skyrocketed. And, uh, you know, we could be going back to the bad old days. And I'm just telling the next generation, well, you see, we had arguably the best police department that America has seen. And that's, you know, warts and all, it's not perfect, but by any quantifiable measure, the NYPD does very well. And by quantifiable measures, I mean, arrests have been going down, crime has been going down, complaints against police have been going down. That's important in the current context. Um, And uh, use of lethal force is very low, uh, about a third, half to a third of the national average. Um, There are a lot of things going right. And then we're going to say, oh, well, you see, we had to dismantle the police department because cops killed the man in Minnesota. Well, wait a minute. Let me just ask you a question, because that was an interesting speech about everything that's been going down, about how good a job the New York City Police Department did. And there's also been no terrorist attack. Uh, They are despised. They are spat upon. They are bricked and mortared. They are uh, uh, water hosed. Uh, why, Why can't Mayor Bill de Blasio give the speech that you just gave? Why hasn't he given it already? Explain the politics of this to me. If they're doing such a good job, why are they hated? First of all, I don't think they're hated. I mean, they are hated by some. But to say most people still like the police, they're a police. Uh, Most people in New York still do. So there is a large uh, but more so vocal minority of people who either actively hate the police or have been caught up in the moment and legitimately want to see things get better, but don't quite understand the big, the big picture. Um, But, but I don't think that police are hated. The problem is politicians are listening to the haters. I can't read de Blasio's mind. I don't know if anyone can read de Blasio's mind. Um, Today or last night, um, the encampment by city hall in New York city was, was, was dismantled, was broken up by police after it's been I there. actually I know. didn't know that there had been an encampment. There was an encampment outside City Hall. Yes, there was an encampment out, outside City Hall. Um, <clears throat> it started with the defund movement. And then um, after the current budget passed, which well, defunded a little bit, but a lot of sleight of hand, not that much changed. Um, then a lot of people left, but it became more problematic. Those who remained in it and a lot of homeless people moved in and there were, um, not, there were, many complaints, of course, but, uh, you know, a professor of mine, um, Richard Mack, uh, teaches at John Jay College, and he's a lieutenant in the NYPD. Um, He was hospitalized uh, last week um, fighting with counter-protesters, severely hurt. Um, And the story is that there was a I don't even want, it's not even a pro-police march, but there was an anti-violence march because shootings have tripled in New York City compared to last year. I'm talking about the last month. I mean, that's a huge increase. And people who live in neighborhoods where these shootings happen, which are not generally rich white people who want to defund the police, uh, are saying this is crazy. So there was a march with clergy and um, police were part of it. Uh, but basically a public safety march, let's call it. And they were marching from Brooklyn to Manhattan. And uh, word got out in the uh, encampment, and they sent out counter-protesters to, with bats to um, meet this protest. So I mean, this is the, protest, the protest was against the increase in violence, violence. in the city, it, it and the counter-protest confusing. is against the people objecting to the increase in violence. Yeah, so and, and they've what, come violently. 
Yes, and then to be clear, what we what I, the counter protests in this case would normally be called the protesters. Um, so the, the, the yeah the terms have shifted here, but the police are aware that they're going out, and I mean they what are they going to do? Beat the clergy with baseball bats? They don't quite know the end game, but they're not willing to watch the end game happen because they're police. Um, and you know the chief of department, the highest uniformed uh, officer in the NYPD, he got hurt. Uh, there, you know, these are top, these are the top. The counter, the there. counter protesters were uh, violently attacking the police. Is that what you're telling me? Yes. Um, and including knocking one into the hospital and breaking his orbital and pretty bad injuries. Well, that's an assault that the person should be held criminally responsible for. Uh, the person was arrested and then, of course, released with um, no bail because of the current situation. So. Um, apparently the person is going to be charged by the Manhattan DA, but ironically, that's not a given even. Um, so this okay. camp, you know, yeah. we're now the camp is gone. Um, this is Did the they have to forcibly right? remove people. Yes. Yeah. And I only skimmed the, the New York times article today, but there were some scuffles and some arrests, but nothing, I don't think anything too bad, but who knows? Um, so where were we? Well, I think we're talking about the moment. I think you were just going off into an example of the encampment in New York City and of the protest and the violence. Uh, I think the general issue was about policing. And uh, in this moment, post uh, uh, George Floyd Ferguson, Ferguson, <laughs> uh, Minneapolis uh, and and uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, uh, de-policing, police withdrawing, you say triple? Homicide is triple what it was over a 30 day period uh, from a year ago. This is a significant increase. Is oh it God, connected at all? Is it connected at all with policing? Uh, and is the supply of policing, if you'll let me put it in those economics terms, the effective supply? The Marxists used to have this idea about, you know, you can have the labor time of the worker, but you can't make the worker work. You have to have a structure of uh, incentive. So the effective supply of policing, not necessarily the number of person hours, but the number of effective person hours on the street, is it endogenous? It, it determined within the system of politics and, and, and uh, lobbying and uh, back and forth? And has that been curtailed? And is that the consequence, the violence increase, a consequence of this curtailing of policing? This is what I mean about, you know, this is what Heather McDonald means about this, is what Roland Fryer is pointing to. Is that going on? Yes, it's going on is the short answer, but of course it's complicated. Um, and I, I had a, an op-ed in the Daily News, I, I think you saw um, on Sunday. And I say, and I make this point, I compare public safety to, to a like, game of Jenga, which most people know, but it's that game where you st- stack wooden blocks uh, into a tower and then each person comes and pulls out a wooden block and it goes around and everyone pulls out a block and I'm making a parallel between that tower and public safety and the tower holds just fine um, until one person pulls one block too many and the whole damn thing comes tumbling down. And that that's what we're seeing right now, I think, in New York City. Um, so it's not one specific thing. It is years of really defanging the NYPD by design. So, yeah, police are policing less, but that's supposed to be a feature, not a flaw. So you get this combination. I mean, first of all, there is there was bail reform, then there was COVID release. So the number of people um, incarcerated in, in jails in New York, you know, dropped fifty percent this year, and that's after a long term decline that was by that you know a long term decline that was planned and good even. 
I mean, not all these reforms are bad. New York decarcerated and kept crime down. That's great. But now no one is going in and everyone is coming out. So that's that's certainly part of it. But that alone isn't it. It's it's a lot of it is internal within the NYPD. Um, the the straw that broke a lot of police officers back was that the um, police abolished their plain clothes anti-crime unit. Um, and my wife likes pointing out if they're the anti-crime unit, what is everyone else doing? Um, <laughs> but uh, and, and more confusingly, often it's just referred to as crime. Which, uh, but this was the unit that was responsible for um, getting for half of all gun arrests in New York City. Plain clothes. Yeah. And you know what? Um, I'm sure there was some bad, you know, they're they're not always doing it politely and on their best behavior. I'm just going to say like, yeah, I mean, this is a sort of the rough cowboy squads, squads to some extent, but they were responsible, but they were targeting repeat violent offenders and getting guns off the street. So they were just abolished with no replacement plan. And this goes to the NYPD. There's a graveyard of effective strategies going back to broken windows um, but then you have the clean halls program where cops were allowed to um, patrol lobbies and hallway common areas of building with the owner's consent. Um, that went away as a sort of collateral damage of the stop question and frisk lawsuit. Um, and then you have units drawn away. Um, and so police got prominent. So wait a minute now, all of these techniques were proven to have worked. I believe I just heard you assert that broken windows proven to have worked. Uh, this common area uh, supervision thing proven to have worked. Uh, the anti-stopping proven frisk is a strong word. Um, the anti-stopping but, frisk sentiments extirpating or stifling effective policing strategies. I just want to make sure yeah. I understand you um, collectively. And again, you know, it's 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 I proven as an academic. I cringe at proven, but yeah, certainly the evidence on the side of they're being effective. And I also wanted to very importantly separate broken windows from zero tolerance policing because a lot of people equate those two and I do not. I'm talking about the strategy of broken windows, the George Kelling strategy that was implemented by Bill Bratton in the early 90s that coincided, and I think not coincidentally, um, but I think uh, helped cause the great crime decline in New York City when murders dropped, you know, 50% in the 90s. How Um, is that different from uh, zero tolerance? Uh, because Broken Windows focuses on problems uh, that the community identifies, public order issues. Zero tolerance is quota based and says, let's just um, write as many as tickets as possible and we don't care who we're doing it to. Um, zero tolerance treats cops like robots and idiots, where Broken Windows is a community policing approach. It's an aggressive community policing approach. Let me see if uh, I understand this. So there are many behaviors in public that are contrary to the law. Think some, King of Jacobs. Them, some of them, like public drunkenness and rowdiness and whatnot, may be especially uh, undermining of the sense of community that ordinary people expect. We want to address the enforcement resources to policing that kind of disruptive behavior and not everything that they could conceivably rouse somebody for so that they can get their quota up. Yeah, yeah. And uh, two examples that might serve to illustrate this point. If you have people in a park at night partying and they leave broken bottles, condoms, maybe syringes uh, in the morning for kids to, to, to you know, step on. Um, so the police go there and they write them tickets and v- rouse them, but they write them tickets for being in a closed park or for open container. The point is, at this point, we're, we're focusing on a specific problem and specific people that are causing that problem. Um, but critics then say, I cannot believe you're only enforcing park closing rules in this neighborhood, which happens to be black or Hispanic, and you're not doing so in other neighborhoods. Well, that's because in other neighborhoods, it's not a problem. 
Or another example is what happens if you live in a large apartment building, it could be private, it could be public housing, and there are kids in the lobby smoking weed and harassing old people and kids as they come in and out. It's a gauntlet, basically. So they call the cops, right? So the cops show up. Cops need legal authority to issue commands. Um, and that legal authority may not be directly related to the harassment because the cops didn't see the harassment, but they're repeated calls. And they, you know, the cops are there a lot. They know what's going on. But at some point, they need the or else of you've got to stop doing this. Um, look, I'm for the legalization and regulation of drugs. I don't think marijuana is a social problem even. Right. But in that context, yeah, you have to be able to arrest these kids if they don't leave. If they don't do what you say, the or else is I'm going to lock you up for something. You need something. And it's that something that has been taken away by design bit by bit because these are considered minor quality of life, uh, low-level offenses, and the impact is racially disparate. Um, and so they, the, the cops don't have that authority. Everything's been decriminalized. So what are cops supposed to do now? They, and now kids are telling cops to fuck off, and the cops are supposed to turn and walk away. De-escalation. Well, you know, what about the other people in that building? What about the person who called police? Um, so it's, that's what I mean by the defanging of the NYPD, that without some legal authority to enforce discretionary, um, what well, to discretionarily enforce laws, for the good of the community and the good of the public, police lose that power. And that, I think, is what has happened in New York City. And, you know, again, for a long time, those blocks could be pulled and there were some benefits from less enforcement. But at some point, you, you, you need to you need police. You know, I, I see a kind of ironic, uh, unintended consequence of the anti-racism movement as it plays out in the area of policing implicit in the remarks that you just made, which pretty much is this. So you say the cop is engaging in this. The problem is social control, and it's a difficult, subtle problem. And you can't exactly command and push everything around like they were pieces on a chessboard. These are human beings, and, uh, you, you know, you're, you're, you're pushing on a string a lot of the time. And so the cop is interacting with the citizen on behalf of the production of some kind of sense of order or public uh, whatever, and there need to be rules. Now, if the uh, uh, instantiation, the pronouncement of any rules has the consequence that their enforcement would have a disparate racial incidence. Any racism will question the legitimacy of the rule. The rule will be said to be racist in virtue of the discriminatory impact. And so, as you have just described, the rule will be withdrawn on behalf of anti-racism. But the withdrawing of the rule cuts uh, from underneath the ground of the of the cop the capacity to, uh, you know, engage with the citizen in a way, because he has, as you say, he has to have some basis for the authoritative assertion of his uh, intervention. Um, and hence, the production of public safety is undermined by the quest for anti-racism. Did that make any sense to you? Yeah. Um, one of, in a press conference recently, one of the chiefs of, of the NYPD said, we have the knowledge to stop a lot of the violence. Um, it is predictable to a large extent, in, given... Um, individual people, uh, given situations that develop, disorderly situations, we have the knowledge, we don't have the power anymore. Um, and that is the feeling of the NYPD. And the reason they don't have the power is because of uh, anti-racism. Uh, broadly defined, yeah. I mean, specifically, there are also issues now that the courts are basically shut down. So no one is is getting, you know, so even when they arrest people, there's, there, there's nowhere for them to go because no one's going into jail. Um, so, you know, there, there are a lot of things here coming together, but it's not just post George Floyd, though. This is when, when, you know, 
it's really hit the fan um, in New York City. Um, let me talk about this. And it's, you know, violence is up overall this year, but this last month is terrifying because violence tripled compared to last year. And that, if, if, if last month is the new normal, not if present trends continue, if last month is the new normal, and it might be, um, we've just thrown away three decades of crime decline in New York City. We're going back to early 1990 levels of shooting and violence. And the reason we need to talk about racial disparity, and it's tough to talk about it, you know, and I know you've talked about it and both talked about it and the problems, is violence is racially disparate. And we don't even have the language to talk about it. So I, I mentioned this in my piece and maybe you saw it, but I've been asking a lot of my friends, okay, given that New York is fif- roughly 55% black or Hispanic, what percent of shooting victims and murder victims are black or Hispanic? And I've gotten a wide range of answers um, and none of them have been correct. Uh, the, the, the answer is 96%. 19, so 96% of shooting victims? Yeah. And some years it's as high as 98%. I mean, at that level, for all practical purposes, we're talking 100%. All yeah, all. All of them. And we don't, we, it's not, no one knows that and we can't talk about it. And I don't know. Then what look, is it, what's have, the implication of that? Why is that significant? It's significant because any solutions that are going to bring down violence um, have to, are, are going to reflect that racial disparity. I, I mean, can know, you be more explicit? Yeah, that, that means that, if that, you're trying to stop people carrying guns, they're going to be disparate hits on blacks or what, yeah. what does that mean? Yeah, that's exactly what it means. Is that 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 I, I imagine one of the reasons that anti-crime unit was disbanded is because their enforcement is probably 100 uh, percent or close to it, you know, 100 um, percent against blacks or Hispanics. Um, that is pro- that that's a you can't do that anymore. But the problem is. The violence is almost 100% against blacks or Hispanics. So I don't know how you can police violence in a way that is, let me say, I don't want to use too many negatives. If you're going to prevent violence, you're going to have to focus, you're going to have to protect those who are the victims of violence and focus on those who are committing it. And those are racially disproportionate to the general population. Um, but somehow we expect policing to reflect the general population, but that's not the way the violence is happening. So there, you know, that when violence triples as it did, um, the victims are all black or Hispanic, and and you know the New York Times won't talk about the race of victims or those who commit the violence, and I understand why. I'm afraid to talk about it because you start mentioning these facts and that you know most people don't know, and suddenly races want to be your friend. Um, I don't, I don't want them to be my friend. I'm not their friend. Um, so, well, well, can I just observe? That if a police officer guns down a, a citizen who happens not to be armed in whatever the circumstance is, they damn sure the first thing they're going to do is tell me about the race of the police officer and the race of the person who was gunned down. That's what they're going to do. That's going to be in the headline. Yeah. So, so yeah. how is it relevant public information uh, in the case of a, a police use of force, deadly force, uh, the racial identity of the people, but it's not relevant information in the case of the uh, much more frequent, uh, almost routine production of violence that involves and endangers and uh, impacts upon the lives of uh, of the citizens of the city. How, how is that not information? Isn't I it don't know, that I don't know. So there's a self-censorship thing that's going on. There's an agreement not to, not to say something. And, and the question that I would have is, 
That may be the New York Times uh, protocol, but that's not going to stop people who uh, read the uh, the New York Post uh, from sitting around their kitchen table and saying uh, these uh, people are killing each other and uh, they're ruining our city. Yeah, but how do people? But you know, this this increase in shooting is not in every neighborhood. It's concentrated in ten police precincts that are traditionally high crime, that are also you know majority minority by far. So you don't so, think people on Staten Island care about that at all? No, I don't. Or either that, or they know that it's that it's a that it's a trap. That if they start talking about it, they'll get dismissed. But I think it's a combination. No, I don't think the suburbanites really care. You know what? Look, if the second we, we we put our head up, it gets chopped off. So screw it. Solve the problem. Now, what about know. these cops? Most of them are from these working class uh, New York neighborhood uh, boroughs and uh, stuff and whatnot, aren't they? And that's why they're so frustrated. Um, that's why they're resigning. Um, and one of the things, because I do speak to a lot of cops, one, one thing that always strikes me um, – is they care about the city. Um, it's not, they're not talking the nonsense that the union heads are talking. Though there's some of that. I don't want to discount that completely. Uh, but these cops care about the city. They, they're from the city. Um, a lot of them are part of the city. And, 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 and it, it hurts them. Um, also, you know, the police department's majority minority. They're, they know people who are victims of violence as well. And so then they got to listen to, to rich white people say defund the police, like police are the main problem. Wait a minute. The New York City Police Department is majority minority? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Mostly Hispanic is the biggest minority we're talking about. Yeah. Um, which there was certain irony in the protests, which um, many of, not all of them, but many of them were disproportionately white telling, you know, black and Hispanic cops that they're racist. Um that that you know you, you, well, you irony stand there the for assassinations. <clears throat> uh, well, irony irony and the vitriolic speeches given by the likes of and I don't know who uh, Al Sharpton or somebody against uh, quote unquote racist cops. The yeah, majority I mean, of them are non-white. Wait a minute, the majority of the NYPD is non-white. I thought it was a bastion of uh, racist uh, Ray Kelly uh, stop and frisk enforcing, uh, you know, et cetera. There is still a strong, you know, traditional white conservative element to the NYPD, as exemplified, I think, by by the heads of the of the police union, the PBA and the sergeants PBA. Um, that is certainly a strong part of it. So, I, you know, that that's there. But, you know, that's that's not the majority of cops. At least here. You know, I've been a so, late. Yeah, go ahead, Peter. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I want to mention this Joe Lepore article that was in the New Yorker, because I, th- I think it relates. Um, Please do. Please tell well, everybody who she is and talk about the article. She is a uh, distinguished professor of history at Harvard University. Um, I've actually been a big fan of hers. <clears throat> and she wrote an article in the New Yorker about the history of policing that just is ignorant of the history of policing. Um, I mean, one thing she says is that it is often said that modern American urban policing begins in 1833 in Boston. Well, no one outside Boston thinks that. Um, that <laughs> is not. That is, that's, that's, I mean, I, there, but what's her thesis? Well, what, what is her uh, main uh, point? Her thesis is that policing is an extension of slavery in 1619 and racial oppression. And I'm I probably am not doing it justice uh, because wow. I'm hung up on a few major points of this piece. Well, First the all, Irish, do the Irish figure in that? This is Boston, right? I mean, uh, before oh. there were the blacks, there were the Irish. 
yeah, policing was very much set up to to control the drunken urban rowdies, primarily the Irish and the police department. So how does that f- factor in with it being rooted in slavery? I don't know, Glenn. I don't know. Um, but you know, I just want to mention the actual history of policing in America starts in New York City when in 1844 it was approved by the city, but the NYPD was set up in 1845. Um, it was the Boston. Here's the thing. The word police itself has existed. I looked this up in the Oxford English Dictionary. It comes from 1477. So the, the word police has been around for a long time. And that, I think, creates some confusion because people say, hey, look, you've got police here. Some of it depends on how you define police. And, you know, reasonable people can differ. But generally, most uh, historians and people who study police define it as full-time employees paid for by the taxpayers, publicly funded, um, who actively patrol to prevent crime and also have the important role of arresting offenders. But uh, that patrol part is key because that's what was invented. And that goes back to 1829 London and Sir Robert Peel. That's what New York set up. It was, just, it was explicitly in that model. When Boston paid watchmen in 1838, there were still watchmen. They were sitting in booths and falling asleep at night. So, so that's what not am I su- Excuse me. What am I supposed to learn from this uh, uh, institutional archaeology of uh, unearthing the ancient origins? I mean, how is that relevant to anything in the year 2020? It's relevant because you either see police, um, <laughs> you either see police as a force for good or a force for evil. Um, that's what it comes down to. Um, and of course there's some middle ground there, you know, I don't, I don't want to say it's either one or the other. Well, let but- me, let me, let me tell you what a social scientist or this social scientist might say. I might say, look, if people are spontaneously organized, they have their property, they're going to be people who want to liberate the property of other people or disputes will arise and people want to use violence to have their way in the dispute or whatever. And so there is a need for order and that's a kind of existential necessity that you can't escape. Now, in the absence of any government or other kind of centralized institution for the provision of public goods, of which one might be security and order, people will have to fend for themselves. And they may spontaneously organize into various kinds of groups and possibilities of self-help and whatnot. And in that process, they'll learn the specialization, you know, creating institutions, getting people who make their profession out of this, you know, investing in this becomes a thing. And then that and it could be private or it could be public, just like education it could be private or it could be public. There's nothing fundamental about the publicness of it, although we could talk about governance, funding, and whatnot like that. The basic thing is collective individuals have to solve the problem amongst themselves of security, and institutions have evolved that, that uh, rise to that occasion. Yeah, we, call, it was, we call them police, it was private, interesting public, whatever. In the Seattle Free Zone to see the function of police very quickly filled by armed amateurs who then shot, uh, you know, two unarmed black kids. Um, and yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's called banditry. And, and um, you know, that, that's what, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get gangs and you're going to, you know, you're going to get all these kind of multi-front uh, conflicts between. Uh, and that's, what we, that's why police were set up is with the urbanization and industrial revolution, these problems happened and, London was the first, and by most, or pretty much all accounts, uh, you know, it was they did a pretty good job. Again, not perfect. And then America saw that, and we copied it. And there were differences between us and London, but but that is, but that 
but but so here, I, I wouldn't be reading Lepore so critically if it weren't for something that came up on Twitter yesterday that somebody highlighted, which is, um, let me read you a pair. This is in the New Yorker, and it's still in the New Yorker online. It has not been corrected. Okay. She writes that one study suggests that two-thirds of Americans between the ages of 15 and 34 who were treated in emergency rooms suffered from injuries inflicted by police and security guards. This is, and then she goes on to say, say that again, two-thirds? Well, let me first say this isn't true, but she says two-thirds, a study suggests that two-thirds of Americans, 15 to 34, who were treated in emergency rooms suffered from injuries inflicted by police and security guards. Now, you're a smart man. If you read that or you thought you read that, what would, what would you think? My first thought would be that can't possibly be true. Well, that's a brilliant reaction, and that would be my <laughs> first reaction. Maybe I mean, I'm misreading the study. Maybe the study's bullshit. The truth is the study's good. I read the whole study. It's an interesting little study by Fenton et al. Nothing wrong with the study. I also wonder, are they going to retract it now that it's been misused? Because that seems to be the rage. They won't, and they shouldn't. How is it misused? This is Jill Lepore. She's a professor yeah. of history, a, a very noted scholar, a professor of history at Harvard, who has a piece in The New Yorker on the history of policing, which trash it, or I should say assimilates the profession of policing to the long since 400 years oppression of people of color, of slavery. And you're saying she misstates the facts so baldly as that? Now, if she said two-thirds and the study said one-third, which is still crazy, I would be upset. That's a huge difference. But ballpark estimates of the number of 15 to 34-year-olds in emergency room are there because of injuries by police or security. And that's a big or, by the way, because security can be brutal. Um, though odds are if your police are more likely to take them some, someone to the hospital. Anyway, the study is, has many limitations, the author acknowledges, but it's a clever study even with those limitations. The real number is probably in the ballpark of 0.016%. We're talking less than one-fifth of 1%. And she says 67%. I mean, this is, it's off by magnitudes of, I don't even know what a, how big of a magnitude I'll bet that you there is. are really more common. gunshot admissions than there are admissions of, of people injured by the cops. <laughs> I don't know, of course. I don't want to say of course. Uh, probably yeah. not true. Me, I don't know. Um, okay, but, we don't know. But here's my question is how, if someone reads this article or misreads this article and, and, and really believes that the majority of people going to emergency rooms of, of 15 to 34 um, are there because they were beaten by cops or security. If you could possibly, like, first, have you ever been to an emergency room? Like, what, what bubble are you living in where you could think that is true? Yeah. And this made it through her editor, copy editor, proofreader, and who knows who else in the New Yorker, fact checker. It made it through at least four people. They wanted it to be true. Uh, it's there because it it uh, conforms with a pre-existing narrative that people want to affirm. They, you know, it's a confirmation the danger, bias. The danger, Glenn, is if you're writing it through that lens where you believe that could be true or close to tr- true, it skews everything else in your worldview. And well, that's what's new. You, you're telling me an article about policing in The New Yorker uh, has a skewed worldview that is anti-cop? I mean, that's not exactly... News of but the there are day. a lot of a lot of you know middle brow people are read the New Yorker, myself included, uh, and will assume it's true because it's the New Yorker and it's Joe Lepore. Like this so, is so. What do you, I want to ask you about this because our time is running out. Um, there's going to be an election, and uh, where the cops stand is an issue. Now you know what Trump is going to say. He's going to say, "I'm with the cops. Our cops. I'm law and order." Is that a winning hand? 
Well, I don't think it'll make let him win, but I think it's a winning hand. Um, look, Biden was very quick not to jump on the defund movement. Um, that is a relief. Um, he understands, well, first of all, I think he understands the good that why we need police at that level, but he also understands the politics. And, you know, the three, the only three institutions, because uh, the church used to be one and they fell off the charts, the only three institutions that Americans constantly have favorable views on are the military, small business, and police. You're not going to win elections if you go against those institutions. And that's regardless of what, you know, that's regardless of whether you're right or not. Um, Americans like those three institutions. So Biden is not going to cede that to Trump, at least. Um, look, the truth is most cops, I hate to say it, are going to vote for Trump. Um, I mean, you know, it's a very conservative institution. And well, I wait a minute, those two statements, it seems to me, are not consistent with each other. On the one hand, most cops are going to vote for Trump, which is an expression of the fact that there are many people, not only cops, who resonate with the Trumpian uh, kind of law and order perspective. But the other is that Biden uh, is not going to allow himself to be maneuvered in the position of being anti-cop. But, but his, he is. I mean, his party is. It, it, the, the energy in his party, the activists are, the people who are pro, the so-called protesters who are throwing frozen uh, water bottles at police officers' heads, uh, are, uh, they're all Democrats. I, I mean, really? I'm, yeah, I'm sorry, to, still, have to, accuse you. I'm sorry still... to have to accuse you of this, but there's a certain kind of sleight of hand going on in which people who speak to the public about this issue exempt Joseph Biden from the logic of his party. He's married to the Green New Deal. We're not talking about that. We're talking about this. But don't tell me he's not for it because he's married to it. And he's also married to Black Lives Matter. You can't tell me he's not for it. I'm just a voter. I'm not a fool. Don't try to pull the wolves all over my eyes and prettify this thing. I'm pro-cop. Biden is anti-cop. I know he's going to say he's not, but his party is his party. I cannot help but what I see. Don't believe my lying eyes. If he, um, I don't know if he is, you know, assuming he gets elected, and let's 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 pray on that one. Um, no, I don't think he is anti-cop. I think a lot of his party is. But no, but that's the thing is the Democratic Party is big. And you know what? I, I want there to be a far left of the Democratic Party. I don't want to be the most liberal person in the room. Um, but no, I don't think he's anti-cop. So look, he's Trump is going to win on saying I'm more pro-cop, whatever that means. Um, and it, you know, it's a dumb, sounds dumb even to say that. Okay. Phrase. So that's a plus for him, but there's a lot of minuses. But, yeah. And there's a, there's still, you know, there's a huge bunch of not crazy, uh, moderate Democrats out there who think maybe things have gone a little too far. The pendulum has swung a little too far in one direction. Um, Biden could have easily said, yes, I'm for defunding police. Um, but he didn't. And that, you know, that, that's a political statement. He's saying, I'm drawing the line here is I'm not going to mind. And, you know, he could later on, he could do something else. But as of now, at least he said, no, we're, I'm going to, I'm going to have a rational approach here to police and public safety. Um, I, let's talk about defund for a moment. If we have the time. I, oh, I yeah, let's take a few minutes. So this surprises a lot of people when I say, you know what, I'm not against defund. Um, if it were actually done right. Um, the problem is I don't think it will be done right. Um, if police did not have to deal with people in mental crisis, did not have to deal with quality of life issues related to homeless individuals in cities, um, if police had to, did not have to deal so much with domestic violence, if we could prevent these things from happening before cops are called, uh, and we could, we should, they're not easy, but other countries do better, um, that would be great. And the second there is less demand for police services, because social services are being proactive and 
and, and dealing with issues, then we can defund police as appropriate. But the problem is the defund movement is also disingenuous because it's a catchy catchphrase. A lot of people have jumped on the bandwagon post-George Floyd, um, but it's not new. Uh, this movement is rooted in police abolition. Um, that is the goal. And there are many, the, the people who, have, who knew about this before two months ago, um, I think would have gladly defunded policing without any increase in alternative social spending. They want less policing. That's the goal. That is the harmful part. Can I just make an observation? It's consistent with the thing I was saying earlier about uh, social theorists, how they think about the public safety problem. Uh, when people say defund the police, they act as if the only thing going on is, is you know, how much money is going to police officers. But there will be other responses to the world that's created by a defunded police or ab- abolished police. And those responses are also going to be violent. Uh, so it does not follow that the number of unarmed black men killed in total will go down if you have zero police officers. They'll well, just, be, the killed. Killed They'll just be killed by somebody else. Yeah, but this also, you know, but is I, that I think wrong? Is, is that wrong? I just, just at a theoretical level, I mean. Yeah, I got no problem with it. Sounds, I mean, I think the problem is for a lot of politicians, there is basically zero damage from people killing each other, from crime, from murder, I'm talking about. And if that doubles or triples, they can just. Okay. And there is a tremendous damage from one cop killing one unarmed black person. I see. Let me try something else on you. So there are police and there are also teachers. And I've been thinking about this in terms of unions because progressive like teacher unions, but they don't like police unions. But I'm thinking they're both public employees under critical scrutiny and they have their representatives. Now, I'm not taking a side about teachers unions or police unions, but I'm just drawing the contrast. Defund the teachers. That's what charter school and uh, vouchers and choice in, in education are. Put power in the hand of the parents. Let them procure education for their kids as they best see fit. Put the money not in the public school system, not where the American Federation of Teachers, National Education Association have thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of members who are feeding at the trough, defund the teachers. Now, that's obviously a reactionary uh, political speech. On the other hand, we have to support our cops. We have to understand that their job is difficult. This is the language of the pro-teacher progressives with respect to teachers. We have to give them resources. We have to understand the difficulty. They're underpaid. They, they are what, you know, we have to understand that they're not yeah. responsible for the homes from which the kids come. Don't measure them by tests that whatever. That would be the progressive rhetoric with respect to teachers. But with respect to police, it's not just body cameras. It's not just qualified immunity that's going to be rescinded. It is if you're accused, you're guilty before even the facts have been ascertained. And we demand, we demand justice, which is to say your head on a platter. Mobs form outside of courthouses to castigate one set of public servants when they make a misstep. And picket lines form on behalf of the public servants in the other sector who are screwing up the futures of our kids. Can you explain that to me? <laughs> no, Glenn, you explained it very well. Um, but, you know, I like, I like that analogy you made between defund and charter schools because I hadn't thought of that. And that's a, it's a perfect analogy. The difference is we set up charter schools. 
Like that's when we have to set up these, we, we didn't just say we're going to close schools and let kids roam the streets. We set up alternatives and some were better, you know, whatever. Some worked, some didn't, but we ha- we set up a new system. We have to set up a new system to deal with these problems we're, we're forcing cops to deal with. The other problem I got with defund well, for, um, is, look, it depends on the city, but roughly in the range of 7% of spending, of total municipal spending, and that includes money from the state, goes to police. It ranges a bit, but we're talking, it's always, always in the ballpark of, you know, six to 10, six to 9%. It's a very standard amount. Um, why, what, what is this argument of scarcity that we have to Im- improve social spending, but we can only take the money from 7% of the budget? Um, what about the other 93%? Or God forbid, what if we raise taxes? Like, that's the part that gets me is, is, is I'm not against <laughs> having better alternatives to police response. But we don't have to get rid of police to do it. And if we do get rid of police, these problems are probably going to get worse. All right, Peter. I'd let that be the last word. This is Peter Moskos at uh, John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And uh, Glenn Lowry here at the, uh, bloggingheads.tv. We've been talking about uh, policing in America. Thanks for uh, giving us some time, Peter. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Glenn. I do appreciate it. Take care.